0: Good morning to all of you. Matthew 8, 5 begins the story of Centurion, who approached Jesus and appealed to him. He said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Jesus replied, I will come and heal him. But what the Centurion said next was surprising. Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. He continued, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, Matthew tells us, he marveled. Now, wouldn't you like to be able to say something that Jesus would marvel at? And why did Jesus marvel? Here's why. Jesus told his followers, truly, I tell you that no one in Israel, with no one in Israel, have I found such faith. That centurion had faith in Jesus' authority. And the centurion wasn't a novice on the topic. He had extensive leadership experience. He understood it well and how it works. He was under authority, so he knew what it was to be a follower. But he was also a leader himself. He had soldiers and a servant under his authority. And he appreciated how leadership can get things done in an orderly manner. Instructions needed to be given and followed. That's how leadership works. But... Given that familiar leadership model, he also grasped how Jesus's authority transcended what he knew. By faith, he understood that Jesus directed things he couldn't see or comprehend. So he was confident enough to simply take Jesus at his word. Jesus promised to come and heal his servant. And the centurion trusted Jesus to take care of it because he'd given his word. So he felt confident and secure under the authority of Jesus. And leadership is part of our church experience, isn't it? God uses leadership as a tool to accomplish his purposes. But leadership in the family of God is distinct from the world. That's not to say there aren't abuses. Scripture even warns us about them. Yet we can be sure that God holds his people accountable and will judge them accordingly. Even with imperfections, there's no dispensing with leadership in the church under Jesus. It just needs to reflect our great Savior. I think the well-known evangelical leader John Stott described it well. Hear this. The authority by which the Christian leader leads is not by power, but love. Not by force, but example. Not coercion, but reasoned persuasion. Leaders have power, but power is safe only in the hands of those who humble themselves to serve. So if you would, please turn to Hebrews 13. That's page 1009 in the Bibles under the seat in front of you. And take out the outline in your bulletin. It's titled, Under Jesus' Leadership. I'll begin reading at verse 7 and go to the end of the chapter. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke the word of God. Spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have no benef- which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them for I've written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy Timothy, has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Leadership is such an important topic We read and talk and think about it every day. Good leadership, bad leadership, no leadership at all. We want to be under good leadership. But even when it doesn't go well, we shouldn't be concerned that Jesus has abandoned us. He's always there, every step of the way to our ultimate destination. We're under his leadership, no matter how it seems at the time. Verse 5 reminds us that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. So we can confidently say, verse 6, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Therefore, we can run with endurance as we, one, remember our destination, two, continue to do God's will, and three, bear with exhortation along the way. So our first point is remember your destination. And as we pursue Jesus Christ, we follow faithful leaders. Point A, leaders who are also following Jesus. How do we recognize them? By their lives, their Christ-likeness, and their teaching. First, the lives of faithful leaders. Verse 7 tells us, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. He's not just talking about the current leadership. It's much broader than that. The emphasis is on the outcome of these leaders' lives. It implies that they've run the race of life and finished well. So it's not point in time. Their faithfulness has been tested over a lifetime, even to their death. That's the context for imitating their faith. Remember, Hebrews was written at a time when the first generation of church leaders, think Jesus' disciples, were suffering and dying for their faith. He's including these leaders with all the faithful lives he spoke about in Hebrews 11 as additional examples. Now, how about us, about 2,000 years later? We have even more examples but I'm not simply talking about famous Christians, people in the public eye. I'm especially talking about men and women who suffered persecution with lives that gave a faithful testimony to Jesus Christ. And why are these examples important? Well, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, gave us that reason. It says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Second, Christ-likeness of faithful leaders. Again, the first, first century church saw apostles and other leaders suffering and dying for their faith, It had to be disconcerting for God's people. Was the church of Jesus Christ going to be snuffed out with the first generation? But the suffering and persecution they endured wasn't meant to discourage. Rather, it was an encouragement. Those faithful lives were the outcome of confidence. Confidence in an unchanging Gospel based on the accomplishments of an unchanging Savior. That's what verse 8 emphasizes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Until Jesus comes again, there will always be transitions in leadership. People get old and die a new generation of leaders replaces them but that's not a threat if we're under Jesus's leadership why because it's Jesus who guarantees the new covenant blessings for us and his people not the leaders they're just Jesus's servants Chapter 7, verse 24, told us that Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So he saves to the uttermost. We draw near to God through Jesus. It'll always be that way. So the phases of leadership in the church may change, but we're forever under Jesus's leadership. That's critical. He'll never abandon us. Third, the teaching of faithful leaders. This began with the teaching of Jesus, but the teaching of the apostles is crucial for us to follow. They taught with authority under the leadership of Jesus. That's why we believe in the New Testament writings, along with the Old Testament, that they're the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. We hold fast to this teaching and follow leaders who were and are faithful to it. We see that in verse 9 do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. This verse underscores how important it is to consider what the scriptures say very carefully. It's God's grace that saves us. But it's also God's grace that keeps us saved. The strength of our confidence grows as we learn about God's grace. If we have Jesus, then we have everything that we need to be pure in God's presence, everything. Following rules and rituals doesn't give us that confidence. That kind of devotion can't make God love us any more than he already does. Hopelessly striving to keep ourselves in the love of God by following rules and rituals isn't what faith looks like. That's not how God strengthens us. So there's no benefit to those kinds of teachings. Salvation is by God's grace alone. You know, years ago, I was coming back from a business trip from Ithaca, New York. It was winter, and I had to drive in a snowstorm. The roads were slick, and the visibility was bad. But I really wanted to get home. Early in my journey, I spotted a big truck with bright red lights on the back, and I started following it. I'm so grateful for that truck and how it helped me get home That day, in the midst of those storm conditions, I was able to focus my concentration on following that truck. And this went on for a very long stretch of the interstate. Eventually, that truck turned off, and I continued my journey without that truck. But it's hard to imagine how I would have made it without that help. Following leaders can be like that. Leaders come in and out of our lives. Some remain with us for a while and prove to be so helpful. And scripture gives us clear instruction about the benefits of good leadership and what kinds of leaders to follow. We don't follow leaders blindly. We observe the outcome of their lives, their Christ-likeness, and their teaching. And faithful leaders are so helpful in following Jesus Christ. Make the connection to back to the beginning of chapter 13. We follow leaders whose words are consistent with the conduct of their lives. That means they love their brothers and sisters in Christ. They helped people who were outcasts and had been mistreated. They honored marriage. They lived lives of contentment. They expressed gratitude to Jesus Christ. And when their life was over, it was clear that they had persevered in faith. Now, you can't persevere in faith if you don't follow your faithful Savior, point B. Because Jesus is the only source of God's grace, the grace that strengthens us to do his will. It was his sacrifice on one, the true altar, that atoned for our sins. But following him is difficult, Jesus said this himself. Matthew seven fourteen. the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those, are, those who find it are few. Following Jesus means we must go, two, outside the camp, and three, bear his reproach. Verse 10 says... We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Commentator William Lane points to an antithesis here. We have, they have not. In other words, it's really the people who follow Jesus who have access to the true altar, even though it may not look that way right now. Contrast that with the people who serve the tent. They're serving what may seem permanent to them, but in reality is only temporary because it's given way to something better. He's addressing the temptation to abandon Jesus and return to the inferiority of temple worship. Remember, Hebrews was written at a time when the second temple of Jerusalem it was still standing, and it was very impressive, especially who people, to people who like to believe in something that's big and spectacular in very visible and tangible ways. Lots of rules and rituals, a magnificent building sectioned into holy and most holy places, specially appointed priests in distinctive clothing, Beautiful vessels used for exclusive purposes, real animal sacrifices that came with elaborate instructions, actual blood and fire. In appearance, it was all very impressive. But in Hebrews ten, four it told us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Only the sacrifice of Jesus can make atonement for sins. So if we have Jesus, we partake in a better sacrifice. But, that's, but it's not the outward appearance that attracts us. Not yet. It's understanding that future hope in Jesus is certain. And it's understanding that he's already dealt with our sins as our great high priest. That's a present reality. So because that future hope is certain, when Jesus returns, it will be impressive in every aspect. But for now, our confidence is in the true altar that we can't see. And because our glorification is future, following Jesus means we're outcasts in the present world. So if we want to be with Jesus, it means we're outside the camp. Now, in terms of life in the church, Christians are, of course, insiders. But in terms of this present world, Christians live as outsiders. Why? Because... That's how Jesus accomplished his mission and offered his sacrifice for us as an outsider. Verses 11 and 12 explain. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The Jews hearing this message would have understood he was referencing the Day of Atonement. The animal sacrifice made on that day could not be eaten. It was taken outside the camp and completely burned with fire, a place considered profane and impure. The person who performed that work had to bathe and wash his clothes, a cleansing process. Until that was complete, he remained outside the camp. That figuratively explains where Christians stand in relation to the world right now. We've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus' atoning death on the cross. He received the curse that our sin deserved to sanctify us. But that's not visible yet to the rest of the world. So until Jesus's kingdom comes, even though we're presently under his leadership, we remain outsiders in the present world. And we need to realize that being an outsider and going outside is a place of reproach. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. We follow Jesus in his reproach. That means we're seen as disgraced people, a disappointment. Jews viewed people outside the camp as unclean. That's why Jesus was a stumbling block, because the death he died on a cross declared publicly that he was cursed by God. But he didn't deserve to die that death. We did. And if he died that death for us, then living for him means we go to him outside the camp. And by going to him, we bear the reproach he endured. That's why it's hard to follow Jesus. How about you? So let me just ask this morning where do you stand? Maybe you're comfortable with the world the way it is. You don't want to be an outsider. So you don't want to go to Jesus for salvation. See, I understand. It's hard. But there's something much harder. That awaits you. That's God's judgment. And when God's kingdom comes, only those who've trusted in Jesus' sacrifice will be judged as insiders. Do you see? The outsiders in this present world, when Jesus' kingdom comes, will become insiders. The rest will be outsiders because they've lived apart from Jesus Christ. So here's the question. Are you one of them? If so, it means you'll receive God's wrath. That is, unless you repent of your sins and trust Jesus. Jesus died the death you deserve to take away your sins and make you an insider in his kingdom. And if Jesus is your salvation, then remember your destination. Verse 14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So our destination isn't this present world. We have no lasting city here. We only have persecution and reproach here. But it won't always be that way. Faith looks forward. We want to be with Jesus Christ in God's city, where God's will is done and where we receive our promised inheritance. So let's keep moving in that direction. You know, in my younger days, I remember taking a psychology course at the local uh, university. There were about 30 students in the class. In the first session, the professor explained that there were three models of human abnormality, two of which he would discuss in the course. He said he didn't really consider the third model very seriously, but he wanted to see if there were any students in the class that considered it viable. He called it the sin model. Now, I didn't know the details of that model and all its complexities, but I figured that if the Bible says that human depravity is explained by sin, then I had to at least consider it. So he called on any students that would consider the sin model as viable to raise their hands. I really didn't want to, for fear of reproach. He would make me an outsider in that class. But I wanted to follow Jesus. And I didn't see any other way around it. So I timidly raised my hand. And I was actually glad to see one other woman in the class was raising hers, too. Now, I imagine we were a disappointment to the professor and a disgrace to that class. And I don't know if that was actually true, but it felt that way to me. Now, it was a small thing and hardly worth being considered persecution. But it was a moment when I had to make a decision to follow Jesus to a place of reproach. And it felt good to do so, even though it was difficult. No one enjoys being made fun of. No one likes to be looked down on. No one wants to lose their reputation. No one is eager to put their position at risk. No one wants to strain their relationships. No one wants to be unloved, alone, mistreated, or rejected. We all shudder at the idea of being thrown in prison. Of course, no one wants to be beaten, tortured, or killed. But Jesus endured all those things to save us. We don't go looking for them. But in the course of history, including regions in our world today, the persecution of Christians has been very severe. And in all times and in all places, following Jesus means you're willing to lose your life for his sake sake literally so find ways to follow him in the small things today in your community at work with your extended family among your friends wherever life takes you learn to follow Jesus in all the small things because they do matter And it'll help prepare you for the really hard things yet to come. We need to remember our destination as Christians. We're destined for God's city. We're following Jesus and we're following faithful leaders to that city. But how do we get there? That's highlighted in point two. Continue to do God's will. It's a summary of what it looks like for believers to do God's will as we seek his city. How are we able to do God's will? Look at the beginning of verse 15. It's through him, Jesus. Jesus is leading us. And why are we able to do God's will? Because of what verse 12 says. Jesus sanctified us, his people... By his sacrifice, his own blood, Jesus has given us the ability to do God's will, to actually please God. What does that look like for the church? Well, it's offering thanksgiving to God, submitting to godly authority, and responding to God's blessing. So point A, offer thanksgiving to him. Verses 15 and 16. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now notice that these things are associated with loving God and loving one another. And that connects back to verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. First, this offering involves fruitful praise. The idea behind this is an Old Testament thank offering or praise peace offering. So it's freely given. It's entirely spontaneous. It comes from a person who's already reconciled to God in covenant relationship with him. So it's the praise of people who are bearing fruit in Christ. In fact, we can think of it as giving our applause to God, even a standing ovation. We're celebrating together how he acted on our behalf for the sake of his own name. So we're admiring God for the sanctifying power that we're experiencing in our lives. Admiring him. Second, it involves good works in Christ. So we praise God with our lips, but we also praise God with our actions. That can't be neglected. Think about the question James posed, James 2.14. What good good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The author of Hebrews agrees that faith is more than just words. Chapter 11 described people who both praised God with their lips and acted in faith with their good works. Doing God's will includes both. Third, our thanksgiving to God involves generosity with possessions. Now, this is a pretty basic idea. It means sharing what you have. Isn't that what we try and teach our children early on? Share with others? It's not easy, is it? Children are naturally selfish. They like to say mine. But Hebrews is clear. If we're under Jesus' leadership, we're in God's family. And we behave differently. God's will is to be generous with what we have. So how tightly do you hold on to your possessions? You will do well to loosen your grip. Make generous sacrifices to God. You'll please him. And we follow church leaders as we do as we work together to do these things all under Jesus's leadership. So point B, submit to godly authority. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Doing God's will has a lot to do with how we respond to authority. These verses speak to our present leadership. God's order in the church is for everyone's benefit. Yet church leaders don't have unbridled authority They're accountable to God for their actions and under the authority of Scripture. They have special work to do by watching over the people of God. When done well, it's a beautiful relationship that displays God's sanctifying power. But that doesn't mean there aren't tensions. Of course there are. Think about what church leaders are tasked with doing. They encourage and admonish believers to praise God and engage in good works and generosity. They protect against false teaching and confront sinful behavior. They work out practical matters that involve judgment and even ambiguity. That's difficult. It's likely that the author of Hebrews wrote this message because there were some tensions with leadership. So in verse 17, he's expressing why they can submit to godly authority with confidence. It's for their own benefit. God's structure teaches them how to do his will. And it's the same for us. We're not perfect people, not yet. But God's spirit is at work among us nonetheless. So we can have confidence in the leadership God's placed us at in, under, if we're all under Jesus's leadership. And it's best for everyone if it's a relationship characterized by joy, not groaning. And submission to godly authority is done with prayer. It's easy to complain about leadership, yet how many of us consistently pray for our leaders? But that's God's will, that we pray for them. And notice that the author includes himself as one of the leaders. He says in verse 18, pray for us. He gives assurance that this leadership group has a clear conscience and honorable desires towards the congregation. In return, he wants their respect. A good way to respect leadership is to pray for them an acknowledgement that we're all under the authority of God. And we have every reason to pray, because we're a blessed people. So we need to respond to God's blessing, point C. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a benediction, an expression of blessing upon God's people. God's working in us so that he will be pleased with us. What a blessing. But notice what the blessing entails. God equips his people with everything good. Why? That we may do his will. That requires a response. At the conclusion of every worship service, our pastor comes up here, raises his hand, and pronounces a benediction on all of us. But do you receive it as a blessing? Are you motivated to respond? Do you actually listen to it? Or are you distracted by the commotion at the end of the service? Are you busy thinking about what's for lunch? And does it go in one ear and out the other? Benedictions like this one are a great blessing, and we need to respond. Why? Because God's word has declared that we have everything in Christ. All that's been described in the book of Hebrews. Can it get better than that? No. So respond to the blessing and do God's will to the best of your ability. And to the best of your knowledge. And there's a final appeal with this blessing it involves our attitude. Because our attitude matters. We're not doing God's will if we don't listen to His word with a sense of urgency and priority. We need to hear it with the right attitude, for example, without grumbling. So point three, bear with exhortation. Bear with exhortation. Verse 22 says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. So if Hebrews seems long, the author of Hebrews says his sermon is brief. There's plenty more he could have said, but didn't. He gets it, though. It isn't easy to listen to exhortation. It's hard. We need to be humble. We need to be quick to hear and slow to speak. God's using another person to tell us things that we need to consider and potentially put into action. Often these things can be difficult, things we don't like, things that make us feel uncomfortable. But we're being told here to bear with it. This is often how God teaches us. A patient attitude is important so that we can really learn something. And I want you to notice that this is an appeal to believers, point A. He calls them brothers. In this context, it means brothers and sisters. In other words, he's talking to believers. And that's been the case throughout Hebrews. He's really challenged the people he's addressing As believers, he's told them to pay attention and not drift away. He said they need to grow up and mature. He's warned them several times with harsh words. He cares for them, but he doesn't coddle them. He wants them to endure when faced with persecution, he wants them to be trained by God's discipline. He wants them to persevere in the faith, and he's confident that they'll respond well because they're believers. That's the outcome we're looking forward to. For the sake of each other in this body of believers, exhortation has a purpose and a role. It's an appeal to believers to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And we all need to hear it and bear with it with the right attitude, as difficult as that may be. I also want you to notice, here in the final verses, his affection for these believers, point B. Verses 23 through 25. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all the, your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings grace be with all of you. Affection among brothers and sisters is what characterizes us as a family. It sets us apart. It makes us distinct from the rest of the world. It demonstrates God's power at work in us, God's people under Jesus' leadership. Jesus said, John 13, 35, by this All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Affection for each other doesn't have to be expressed in big, grandiose ways. Sometimes it's the simple things like concern for one another, greeting one another, and expressions of God's blessing towards one another. Some of us are better at it than others. But let's all realize the importance of genuine affection, genuine affection in our life together. So Hebrews demonstrates that we have a sure and steadfast hope in Jesus Christ. He's our forerunner and we follow him. Under Jesus' leadership, we participate in the new covenant blessings now, and we look forward to receiving God's promises in the future. But our faith is based on things we can't fully see. Not yet. Think back to that centurion who asked Jesus to heal his servant. He was in the Roman army. He served under the authority of Caesar. If he'd been to Rome, he would have seen the ultimate world leader in the world's greatest city. It had to be an impressive sight. Such a contrast to how it must have looked as he stood before Jesus. A man dressed very commonly in tunic and sandals, He wasn't on a throne. He wasn't in a palace. He didn't have an entourage. But this centurion recognized that Jesus had great authority, greater than anything he'd seen in Rome. And he understood the power of Jesus's authority. Jesus only had to say the word and he believed it would be done. He had that kind of faith. May we have that kind of faith, too. Faith in the certainty of God's promise. So when things aren't going as expected, we take refuge in Jesus. No matter what happens, We're encouraged by Jesus's indestructible life. And when the path seems difficult, we're confident in Jesus as our forever leader. I pray for that kind of faith for all of us. Faith that believes his word and faith that eagerly waits for his return. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful to be your family, the family of God. May we love one another, and may we love you, and may we show that love by doing your will. And Lord, as we seek to do that, may we remember our destination, the city of God, may we continue to do your will, the will that will be done in that city that we wait for. And Lord, along the way, may we bear with exhortation, patiently, loving one another. In Christ's name we pray, amen.